right. Good morning. Good morning. I uh, told the first service, I love the idea of the marbles. It's so accurate, isn't it? You got a jar full of marbles, take one out every month. By the time your kid's 18, you've lost all your marbles. <laughs> I think really that's the significance of the marbles. So congratulations, uh, parents, grandparents, if you're connected to those families. We had four in the first service and then these two. And we're starting a new series today uh, called Family Life, Family Life. The month of May is typically when we talk about family life, and so we're going to do that this year just like uh, in years past. And so I was reading a blog uh, and that quoted a guy named Dan Stucher who wrote a book called When I'm Needing a Fresh Start, and he told this story about a small twin-engine plane on an isolated European airstrip that was revving its engines, getting ready to taxi over for takeoff. Not a whole lot of people on the plane, you know, maybe a handful. And a a storm was coming uh, across the mountain uh, toward the airstrip, and flashes of lightning illuminated a guy running out of the little uh, uh, building there by the airport toward the plane. His silhouette was seen as the lightning would flash, and he runs over, and the pilot shuts the engine off, the engine's off, and he stops, and the guy gets on the plane. And the passengers could see him standing in the front having a, an intense, heated decision or a discussion with the, with the pilot, after which he turned around and he introduced himself. He said, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Walter Beach." And I am the designer uh, of this airplane, and I know what it can do and what it can't do. And with the storm coming, I recommend that you uh, not take this flight, that you get off the plane with me right now. And about that time, the pilot interrupted Mr. Beach, who designed the plane, and he said, look, I'm the pilot, and I know what this uh, airplane can do. I've flown it many times over the past several years, and I, and I know exactly what it can do. So if you'll remain seated, we can, uh, we can get on with it and take off and get to our destination. And one lady got up and went with the gentleman who got on the plane, one woman, and they walked off. And sure enough, with just uh, within a few minutes, the plane uh, went up into the storm and came barreling down and crashed, killing everybody on board. And the woman who got off the plane, reportedly, was Eleanor Roosevelt, the President of the United States. And she said, I trusted the designer of the, of the airplane and made my decision to get off over the pilot. And it saved her life. It saved her life. <clears throat> As we start this series talking about family and the different aspects of family, and I don't know if you're cued into uh, to the sermon outline. I meant to tell the first services, but I forgot. But uh, the sermon outline uh, that you can get to through the QR code, you can see uh, the sermon outline for today. But you'll also see on the second page the series. Not only this series, but the series following this, uh, the one we're going to do in June. And you can get a little bit of an idea of what we're going to be talking about. And as we begin to talk about family, I want you to know that the designer 
And the creator of the family is God. God designed it, and we ought to listen to him, and he gave us an owner's manual to go along with it. And today we're going to start by talking about what I believe is the foundation of a family, and that's the marriage. We're going to talk about marriage today. Now, I probably don't need to tell you, like Michelle pointed out here in her part, you did a great job, by the way, that the family is under attack. Family is under attack. The biblical conservative family life is under attack. We know this. You don't have to listen very long. You don't have to go very far. You just open up your news apps or just listen to the news or just be out in the public and you'll see that this is happening. And before you dismiss what I'm going to tell you in this series, what we're going to tell you in this series, I want, uh, you know, as if you dismiss them, it'll be because you're like, well, that's old-fashioned or that's not relevant today or, you know, there's a lot of people saying otherwise. Before you dismiss this, I, well, I want you to know two things. Number one, the counsel we're going to give you today and through this series, the counsel comes from the Word of God. That's the owner's manual. The Bible says all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So this is God's word that we're going to found this on. And if you ever believe, not just for this series, but for any series or any sermon you hear, if you ever believe that the foundation for what we're talking about, if it's the entire sermon or just a slice of the sermon, comes from somewhere else besides the word of God, that is, it can't be backed up by the word of God, we invite you, we encourage you, to bring that to my attention, to our attention, so that we can correct that. We don't want this to be our ideas. Secondly, there are countless examples in our culture, countless, I mean, from right here in our own church, of people who disregarded the counsel of God for their family, and they crashed. The plane crashed. There are lots of examples of people doing it their way, doing their own thing, and ending up crashing. So I want to stop right now, and I just want to say a quick prayer, if you would join me. I want to say a quick prayer for all the families of our church. Lord, thank you for your word, especially in this area. There are a lot of issues that impact all of us in this area. This is where we live. We live in our families and Lord, this is, this is where we need your help the most. And we pray, God, that you would indeed show yourself to us, enlighten us by your word, and keep us protected in the circle of your influence and not in the circle of the world. I pray for every family in our church, at every campus, and our families in Haiti. I pray, God, that you would give them the courage to do what you say, to live by your counsel and to help one another as we committed just a little while ago to helping these young families with their children. Lord, that's my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. If you were lied to every day since you were born, would you be able to tell the difference between the lie and the truth? For instance, if you had grown up in the 1800s down deep in the south and you heard every single day of your life that the African-American uh, race, 
the black race, was an inferior race, that they were subhuman, would you be able to rise above that lie and know the truth, or would you be held captive by the lie? Or let's say you lived in the 1930s in Germany, and Adolf Hitler was telling you, as were everybody else in your life, that the Aryan race, the, you know, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed people were the superior race, and that the Jewish people were a threat to their existence, to your existence, and a threat to the world, and needed to be wiped off the face of the earth. If you heard that every single day of your life, would you be able to fight through that lie and get to the truth? Or let's suppose you were born 20 years ago in a country called Pakistan. Pakistan, you would learn from your Muslim parents that your one God was named Allah, and what Allah required of you is to annihilate the infidel, that you could not live the true Muslim life if the infidel was there, and that if you would wipe some of them out, maybe with a suicide vest or some kind of an airplane strike or a bomb or whatever, that you would receive for yourself uh, many virgins in the afterlife at your beck and call, that your, your reward would be great. If you heard that every single day of your life, would you be able to fight through that and find the truth? Or would you be a victim of that lie? You know, every day in America, for the last many years, we've been hearing a lie. It's a lie that's repeated about the family. And, and here, you know, and that lie is, uh, is sinking in. You know, it used to be out there, but now it's kind of sinking in to the church, sinking into the church. And there are a lot of people buying into this lie, thinking that it's not a lie. I'm reminded of that passage in 2 Thessalonians from the Living Bible. Paul says that humans will come with cleverly devised lies. He says, this man of sin, calls him the Antichrist, will come as Satan's tool full of satanic power and will trick everyone with strange demonstrations and will do great miracles. He will completely fool those who are on their way to hell because they have said no to the truth. They have refused to believe it and love it and let it save them. So God will allow them to believe lies with all their hearts. And all of them will be justly judged for believing falsehood, refusing the truth, and enjoying their sins. So what is the big lie that's being told over and over again to your kids, to my grandkids, to all of us from our culture today? It is this. The traditional biblical marriage isn't necessary anymore to have a blessed and fruitful family. Now, I don't know if you need to think about that a little bit or if you need to run that through your history of the images you've seen or what you've heard, but th this is the lie that we're being told, that a traditional biblical marriage is not necessary anymore. You see, I believe that the foundation of a godly marriage, or godly family rather, is a godly marriage. And the foundation of a godly marriage is the Bible. It's the Bible. We don't build a godly marriage on a Reader's Digest 
or on some book we found online. We build our marriage on God's Word. And so I want to say just a couple things and elaborate on each one of them as we talk about marriage. Now, when we talk about marriage, we could have talked about a lot of different things. I thought about talking about the mechanics of marriage, and maybe we'll get into that a little bit next week. Or, you know, I, I thought about that, those verses that say, wives, submit to your husbands. And I ran that by my wife, and she said, no, don't do that. So I'm kidding about that. But no, I thought in, in this day and age, it, is, uh, it, it's, it really shouldn't have to be said, but it, it has to be said from a helicopter view, you know, from the foundational view, you know, we could look at it either way, what I'm going to say this morning. And 10 years ago, 20 years ago, nobody would have disagreed with what I'm going to say. But I'm going to tell you, some of you are going to disagree with what I'm going to say here this morning, some of what I'm going to say. Not only are some of you going to disagree, but you're going to be offended by it. You're going to be offended by it. Now, it's not my goal to personally offend anyone. But if the gospel offends, if God's word offends, then let it be so. That's when we need to change, right? We need to get in line with the gospel. So the first thing I'm going to say and elaborate on is that marriage was ordained by God, not by man. If it was... If it was man's idea, it could be changed. Because every time man comes up with an idea, another man comes up with a better idea or a better version of the original idea. And thank God for that. Because we, you know, we might still be using outhouses if, you know, if we were going with one man's idea. I mean, whoever invented the outhouse was a genius, right? I mean, it's, it's incredible. But the guy who invented indoor plumbing was even better. And I could go into a lot of examples, you know, thank God that people have elaborated and bettered a, an idea that a man had, because we would be still living in the dark ages, as some people are in this, in this world now. But marriage is not man's idea. It was God's idea. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2, you remember this story, the very beginning. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. You know, I feel like ladies, he's kind of feel, he kind of feels like what you feel like every time you go to the grocery store or, like, or you send him to the grocery store. It's like he's going to get into trouble. He's going to do something. So you leave your kids with him to watch your husband, right? That's, the, that's what we do. It's not good for the man to be alone. God said, I will make a helper fit for him. Some versions say suitable for him. And in verse 21, we read, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now, there's a lot going on here in the original Hebrew that we can't really get out into the English. And it, it's, I'm, I'm not even sure it's completely understood here, but there, I've heard and read a lot of different things about this. But there's something mysterious going on here about this side that God took the woman from. I mean, it, some commentators say it wasn't just a rib, it was his side, it was his whole side. But we typically say it was a rib, that the man God put into a deep sleep and he took part of the man's side and he made a woman. One little boy heard this story in Sunday school and uh, a few days later he had a pain in his side and he told his mother, oh no, I think I'm gonna have a wife. 
which would be the worst thing for a little boy, right? He's already got mom. Verse 22 says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at, at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I love the way the message version translates this. It says, This man said, Finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, name her woman for she was made from man. I think what he's saying here is finally, I've been looking at these animals all day and none of them appeal to me, but this woman, she looks good and she's a lot like me. Woman, let's name her woman. And so verse 24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is a biblical monogamous relationship, one man, one woman for life. Now, why does the biblical view of marriage include these elements? I think there are at least three reasons. There might be more. First, I think God created marriage so that we could experience the deepest possible relationship on earth. I mean, if a marriage is working right, if it's going in the right direction, it can become the deepest human relationship. That's why they call it a soul mate. Verse 25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve lived in the garden with no inhibitions. They were completely free and comfortable with one another. You know, there is a physical and emotional and a spiritual bond that develops in a marriage that is deeper than anything you can have with any other human uh, in, in your circle, in, your, in, your, in the world. And I think if we conducted a poll of people here in this room or people out on the street, young people, people who aren't so young, and we ask them, what do you really want in life? I believe on their top five, or maybe the top three list, maybe more, they might say, oh, I want money, I want to be healthy, but I think they would say, I, I, want, a, I want a happy marriage. I want a good marriage. I want a mate for life. I think that's one thing that people would say, because we realize the potential and the power of this human relationship. Have you ever met any, any older couple where one could finish the other's sentences? Or maybe you met a couple where one always does finish the other sentences, and he's okay with it. And they've, they've been together for 50 years, and he's okay with it. And it's a relationship that defies what the world can offer. You scratch your head saying, wow, that, they're really a great couple. Secondly, I think God created marriage so that children would have a secure, healthy, and loving environment in which to grow up. Studies have been done looking at, at kids from single-parent families versus kids who grew up in traditional two-parent families, and the results are that kids in two-parent homes are twice as likely to succeed and uh, be free from psychological and addictive problems in life. Now, granted, I'm not saying that single-parent family kids or kids raised by their grandparents or you know, foster kids or whatever can't be successful and won't have a great life. I'm just saying, statistically, the chances are better 
for a child who grows up in a biblical uh, family with, uh, with a mom and dad, the chances are better for them to succeed and to have a healthy, normal life than for those who don't. And that's, that's what God's word is all about. Thirdly, I think God created marriage so that there would be a tangible example of God's relationship with us. When the apostle Paul talked about marriage, you know, there were a lot of uh, comparisons, a lot of metaphors he could have used talking about God's relationship with his people, but the one that's used so often is that of a human marriage. This is the kind of relationship that God has with us. It's like a marriage. Therefore, he writes in verse 31 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis that we just read. But listen to what he adds Verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what what you have going with your spouse is very similar to what God has going with us as his bride, the church. In any marriage, there's imperfection, right? Ladies, I thought I would get an amen out of you on that one but that's okay. There's, there's sometimes a dropping of the ball. Sometimes there's unfaithfulness. Sometimes there's egregious sins in a marriage. But there can also be forgiveness, and re- there can be repentance and forgiveness and restoration. These things can work because they work with us and God. And it's the perfect model. If you want to know how you should treat your spouse when they hurt you, when they sin against you, you ought to consider before you make your decision how God has treated you in your relationship with him and in your unfaithfulness and mine to him. You know, it only takes lust, a turning of the head and a walking down a different path to be unfaithful. It doesn't take the jumping in the bed and the, uh, you know, the sexual uh, act, it, it only, Jesus raised the bar on this, remember, in the Sermon on the Mount. So when you think about how you should treat your spouse, think about how God has treated you. And, and so God designed marriage. I think we should listen to him. That's the truth. The second truth is that Satan will attack us at every turn. Be ready for it. Pray. Do your best to know God's word. Don't be naive and think that the devil isn't already trying to pry his way into your family, into your marriage, into the lives of your kids, into your weekends, into your children's school, into their social media accounts, into every nook and cranny in your life. The devil is trying to find his way in. He hasn't hasn't rested. He hasn't taking a break. He's not going somewhere else. He's not going to the next house down the street. He's kind trying to get into your house. He's trying to get into your marriage. He's trying to get into your thinking. He's trying to get into your kids. He's trying to lie to them about what it takes to be favored and blessed by God. I mean, just look at how he acted in Genesis chapter 3. This is the chapter that we call the fall of man, and great was its crash. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman that God had made, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the 
any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice Satan's attack. First, he gets us to question God's word. Did God really say that? Then he gets us to deny God's word. That's not true. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. Then he reverses God's word. You're not going to die. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll be just like him, knowing good and evil. Well, Satan was telling the truth there. We, they did become knowledgeable. They did become more like God's awareness. But guess what happened? They began to die. He lied to them. He denied God's word. He reversed it. And we all know what happens next. Eve ate of the fruit, that shameful woman. Then she gave some to her poor, defenseless husband. <laughs> poor guy. And of course, he did what she told him to do. She was wearing the, no wait, neither one of them were wearing any pants. But seriously, after that exchange in the garden with the devil, there was a great crash. It was a great crash, and that's why it's called the fall of man. Then there was blaming and finger-pointing. They had to, uh, you know, kind of weasel their way out of responsibility. Isn't that what we do? And then they eventually had to pack up and move out of the garden. They had two sons in pain, I might add. And then one killed the other, and their family became so dysfunctional. And the devil never let up. And he's not just attacking them, he's attacking us. And he's telling us lies today. For instance, he tells us the cohabitation lie. Satan says, go ahead and live together. Be sexually intimate together before you marry to make sure you're compatible. This way you'll have a basis of comparison. Well, let me tell you that comparison will destroy your marriage. Do you know this? <clears throat> comparison will destroy your marriage. This is one reason that pornography is so harmful to a marriage and a future marriage. Pornography will destroy a marriage, and it will put a future marriage at risk before you even get there. Why? Pornography, first of all, it objectifies women. It turns them into sex objects. They're not real humans. Secondly, it creates unrealistic and harmful comparisons in your mind for your partner. Your wife is not a, a, a porn star. Neither is your husband. And you shouldn't expect them to live up to what you've seen in these images. But I think the most dangerous thing that pornography does to you and to your marriage is it desensitizes your brain. It desensitizes your brain, and so when you see an image that catches your eye, the next time you want to see something a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Before you know it, you're in so deep you never dreamed it would get this bad that you would have to, you would be craving those images. And eventually, I think probably it, it starts acting out in the flesh. So that's a lot of what's wrong in our culture, and this will destroy you and destroy your marriage. Then there's the divorce lie. Cohabitation lie, there's a divorce lie. Satan says, if you're not happy, 
get out and try again. Working on your marriage is too hard and too time-consuming. So keep divorce in your front pocket. That's the lie right there. Keep it in your front pocket. In other words, as you're walking up the aisle, keep this as an ace in the hole. You, I can always get out. I can always get out. Now, I know that divorce happens, and it's happened to a lot of people in this room, last service at every campus and all of our churches everywhere, and it happens. It's happened in my family. Divorce happens. But divorce should never be a first pick. It should never be in the top of your list. It should never be in the front pocket, not even in the back pocket. It ought to be after long deliberation and prayer and counseling, giving God a chance to work. If necessary, getting counsel from elders and uh, uh, other couples and counselors, but never use it as a first choice. It's a lie the devil is saying, hey, you got a way out if you need it. That's not the way God designed it. In fact, the Bible says God hates it. God hates divorce. And then lastly, there's the homosexual, homosexuality lie. This is a lie that's becoming more and more accepted in our world when uh, Satan says, let your lusts lead your love. He says this, and here's a big lie, and if you're struggling with same gender attraction, listen to this. Satan says that your identity is found in your sexuality. That's a lie. Your identity is not found in your sexuality, no more than mine as a heterosexual is. Our identity is found in Christ and Christ alone. And that's where we need to lean into him. And you know, uh, two people of the same gender might be attracted to one another and they might move in or get married according to the eyes of the state. And they might even adopt children, raise them. And this might seem harmless on some levels, but it's not in line with the Bible. It's not in line with the Bible. And there are many verses that we could read, but we're not going to this morning, that tell us that God, this is not God's plan. It's not God's will for our lives. And I know it, there's a struggle. There is a struggle on both sides. There's a struggle on the side of those who are same gender attracted to what am I going to do now? Why can't I have a relationship? Why can't I have what you're talking about there with that deepest possible human relationship? And I wish I could answer all those questions. I wish I could say, well, here's why. I wish we could find a, a gene or something, you know, that says this is why, if we can just take this out. But, the, you know, I, I, I admit and I will concede that there are some people who seem to be uh, same gender attracted from a very young age. I'll concede that. And I also concede there are, there are some people who seem to be very mean at a very young age. And there are some that I think are, uh, you know, promiscuous at a very young age. You know why? Because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're all in need of a Savior. If someone says, well, they're just born that way, you know what? We need to be born again. We need to be born again, and we can't find our identity in our sexuality. A few years ago, I, you know, there's a great temptation for preachers and public speakers to be funny. And, uh, you know, it feels good when people laugh at what you say, as long as you, you meant for them to laugh. Uh, and I tried to be funny, and I made a comment uh, in, in a sermon with this as the context. 
And it, though it was funny, it was inappropriate. Now, it wasn't inappropriate in that it was dirty or anything. I just made a stupid remark. And I heard about it later, and I apologized. And I said, you know, I should not have said that. This is not funny. It's not a funny thing. And uh, we do joke about a lot of different things, but I want to tell you, there should be nothing but love and respect for every human being, regardless. Now, that doesn't mean I condone your behavior or condone even your thoughts. What it means is I recognize you as a person made in the image of God that is redeemable and that God can change. You know, that's, it's not our job to change people. It's our job to pray for people. It's our job to share the gospel with people. It's God's job to change them. And that's the approach we should take. You know, that's what Calvary did for us. That's what Calvary did for us. We shouldn't shut the door on those relationships, on those friendships. We shouldn't say, I'll never have anything to do with you. We should keep the doors open. However, in the end, in the end, I don't believe a practicing homosexual will make it to heaven. I just, from the scripture that we could have read here this morning, and I'll give you some references if you want to read them, Leviticus 18.22, Romans 1.24-27, 1 Timothy 1.9 and 10, and these are on your outline if you get there. So what do you do? What do you do? I, I think you, you, have to, you have to find holiness. The opposite, Christopher Yon, who was a homosexual man who came to discover Christ and the gospel, he says the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, it's holiness. The opposite of lying and murder and lust is not something else. It's holiness. And that's what, we're, that's what we're commanded to pursue as people made in the image of God. Pursue holiness, righteousness. You are not your sexuality. Your identity should be found in Christ. I know there's a lot of heartbreak in both people who have same-sex desires as well as people who have others in their family with those, but there should be no hate. There should be no hate and there should be no disrespect, but there should be the truth and the gospel should be shared. The ultimate plan for all of us, according to Romans eight twenty nine, is to conform to the image of Jesus. And that's his plan for the family. In a sense... In a sense, your family is a small-scale version of the church. And what we're trying to do in the church is what you're trying to do in your family. Make little Christs. Little Christs. Little Christ followers. That's what we're to do. Turn people into followers of Jesus. Make that your goal as a, as a mom or a dad, a husband or a wife. And I think that'll... That'll bode well for you as you go throughout your life and lose your marbles along the way. Turn them into lovers of Jesus. You know, I had a great family. Uh, my dad uh, divorced his first wife and, uh, and married my mom, and then we, he had four kids. But they both loved the Lord. Eventually, my dad, when I was in high school, started going to church. He didn't go to church when I was younger. Learned a lot of bad lessons there along the way. But my mother was faithful, took us to church, 
and we worshiped the Lord. My dad finally started coming to church, and I can still remember the very first time my dad, still remember it like it was yesterday, said a prayer over our meal, just a prayer at the mealtime. He never had done it before, never had done it, but I remember the day he did it, and he became the spiritual leader of our home on that day. It changed my life. It changed my life, and I think it could change yours. I think it could change yours, and it could change the lives of your children. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, for godly marriages, for, for families who are striving to honor you in every part of their life, Sunday to Saturday. I pray, God, that you would honor our efforts and bless us to that end. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.